Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Dream Job Ready. My name is Dane Sharp. I'm your host and my guest for this episode is Aaron Young. CEO and founder of the new and exciting broadcast media platform, Ticker. Please note that the opinions of guests are their own and not those of the companies they have worked for. G'day, Aaron. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Dream Job Ready. Firstly, for those that haven't listened or got the Ticker app, I'd love you just to give us a quick spiel about the business and how you got started with Ticker. Yeah, Dane, thanks so much and congratulations on everything you're doing as well. Um, Ticker is basically, we say, the business of, and then we finish it. So it could be the business of weddings, it could be the business of news, it could be the business of media, and on and on it goes. It actually started off, it was going to be um, kind of this under 45 channel talking about the markets and business. And then I thought, well, I think that there are, there's this huge crowd on LinkedIn, there's this huge group of people talking about skills and news and just so much. And that's what we kind of merged into. So where we began seven months ago, I knew, and even when we basically ticked record for the very first day, that it would continue to evolve into what people needed, not what we thought they needed. So we have all sorts of shows from how to handle a crisis in your career and personal life, we call it the 30 life crisis. She's the boss about females. We have news programs at eight in the morning, 10 in the morning, 2 p.m. in the afternoon. They kind of talk about um, startups and founders and entrepreneurs and the business community and news. So it's, it's really trying to not m mimic the 6 p.m. news as such or news channels that exist, but to give Australians a bit of a, a broader conversation about what's happening in the economy that isn't just what's happening on the stock market. So I think that's the best way to sum it up. Now, that's awesome, mate. And you know, it's such a timely uh, opportunity for you as well, right? You obviously didn't predict the year 2020 and the amount of uh, varied news we were going to have, but um, you know, it must be... It must be uh, exciting for you, I suppose, to be have launched a business like this uh, and, and be able to kind of convey these stories and tell these stories to, to different people that are, that are keen to tune in in different ways. Yeah, well, there were three main events really over the past essentially 20 years that we remember. There was 9-11 in 2001. There was Hurricane Katrina, of course. It happened in about 2006. And then there was also... Um, the uh, GFC that happened in 2008, 2009. And when I think back to 2008, um, I had just started working for Sky not so long earlier and the GFC happened just as we launched a business channel that I've been seconded over to. 
And to think of, I was learning about finance news as the world's economy is collapsing um, was a really interesting experience. And I've been able to take a lot of the lessons from what it was like going through that into this. I was working in Russia, a company called Russia Today, just as it was launching when Hurricane Katrina was happening as well. And there we are in Russia kind of dealing with all these stories and the biggest story is happening over there and, and how you kind of cope when the story isn't impacting you right here, but it's happening elsewhere. And obviously COVID-19 is everywhere here and overseas. Um, and then it reminds me of the anxiety I had as an 18 year old journalist getting my first job at a local newspaper not so long before September 11 happened in 2001. And I remember being up all night watching this coverage from around the world, knowing that the next morning I had to go to Rosebud Hospital to take photos of newborns and their parents, which was my job in journalism at the time, not covering these massive stories. And so journalism really, um, and, and I think those experiences give you an idea of where my head's at, which is stories, there's no point telling someone anything. We don't work that way. Everybody consumes news that talks to them in their circumstance. And that's how we look at things at Ticker. We have, like, we have about 30 or 40 different programs at the moment, many of them focusing on COVID-19 in one way or another, but in every way, every show talks to a different sector, a different niche about how things are impacting them. You've obviously had a, a long and, and a very successful career uh, in media, and and you know in this in this chat we'll we'll dance through a few different uh, roles and dream jobs you've had because you know you've worked for some great companies and and, and even tried um, you know your own businesses previous to this uh, when you were just getting started out, but but just really quickly staying on on, on um, ticker for the minute, um, you know what what is your staffing like if you've got that many shows now and and it's and it's grown that quickly? How do you staff ticker? Are you working with full time employees? Have you got contractors? How does the talent work? Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, well, we are a small business to start with, and I have been you know working at Foxtel and sadly seeing what's happening there, the transition that's happened in the media over the past few years, where a lot of full timers are out the door and it's casuals and contractors coming forward because businesses really want that flexibility. We're no different. So when we began, it was just me every day and I was doing absolutely everything from presenting shows to if we brought on other shows, I'd have to do that as well. Then we brought in a business partner, a wonderful guy who was able to assist us, um, who's now becoming our commercial director, Jeb Tali, um, and he, he helped with the programs too, so it was the two of us. And then we went, well, we need more shows because eventually we want to be a channel that has 17 hours a day of content and we'll die if we do that. And when I talk about it all happening organically, well, that's what I mean. We would have guests who would come in who I would go, you're a great guest. You know your topic really well. How would you feel about doing a show? So that happened with Jules Brook, who then went on to become the host of She's the Boss, and Dr. Steve Enticott, who went on to become the host of 30 Life Crisis. And one by one, people would start coming to us or they'd see on LinkedIn what was happening and they would come to us. I'll tell you, I've never had to make a single call. I've never had to go out and search wow. for people right from the very beginning, and I think that tells you that you're on the right thing, it's been, um, there's a saying, never chase a girl. <laughs> and that's been what's happened with us. We haven't had to chase, it's been the other way around, which tells us there was a huge hunger and desire for the sort of stuff we we're doing. But we got to the stage late last year where we were kind of calling on mates to help us out and things like that. And it was just because you gotta get the revenue right. I never wanted us to be this kind of Silicon Valley company like Uber or WeWork that can lose billions of dollars but somehow be deemed a success because they've created disaster in an established industry. Of course you want to disrupt, you have to disrupt. But 
I don't think that in Australia we have the same kind of mentality of disrupt and lose money. It's disrupt and make money, otherwise you're not going to be around for very long. So everything we did was based on making sure that if we did something here, we could back it up here. So I call it extend and fulfill. So we extend ourselves where we spring on someone for maybe four or five hours, and then we fill it up, we fulfill, we make it work so we can get them to that eight hours. And that's the process that we take. So we have two full-time staff, we have two casuals who are at about six hours a day, we're moving to eight hours a day. We just kind of, I'm constantly in touch with Jed saying, what can we afford, where are we at? Um, and that's pretty common. Like I, I've always immersed myself in the stories of people like Walt Disney. Um, and Walt may have been the face of, the Walt, of Walt Disney Studios, but his brother Roy was the guy who allowed him to be the philanthropist, to be the entrepreneur. You've got to have an entrepreneur. You've got to have a great person behind you who's your CFO, your commercial director, because entrepreneurs don't generally know much about um, ticking boxes and making sure stuff's done. It's been about trying to get the foundations right, and we've got that, and now it's about growing. That's awesome, mate. And that's, um, you know, I, I hear you on the one-two punch uh, of that leadership. I've, I've seen it in, in, in companies I've worked for. The, the best example was Ripcoil with its two founders, um, you know, Doug Warbrick and, and Brian Singer. Um, they were, you know, like-minded people, obviously, um, to start a business like that together, but they were also so different, yin and yang and black and white uh, at the right time. Oh, so, absolutely. Yeah. I'm the kind of creative guy and I can't stand doing the finance stuff or calling people up and saying, where's my money? But that's what I need because, because I don't like doing it and I can't do it. The business would fall over if I didn't do it. So to bring someone in um, and, and similarly, whenever he tries to do creative, I just stand back with a smirk on my face and say, get out of my office. So <laughs> but that's how we work. That's how we young. We're great friends. We get on really well. Um, and that partnership, that team environment, that sense of never making anyone feel like there's a hierarchy or anything like that. It's about trying to say, you know as much about your area as I know about my area. And if you tell me it's final in your area, that's fine. So long as you accept the same when I say it in my area and that's it. We always need to listen to each other. You don't always have all the answers, but it's a humbling experience. I think it's really, um, you know, really great that it sounds like even though you're a small business, you're starting to already thinking about that culture and, and building that trust amongst, um, you know, your employees and future employees, which is well, super it's important. Kind of, it's just about being open. Like there's no secret squirrel. What's to hide? I sometimes just go into the newsroom where everyone is and I sit in the middle and have a chat with everyone about where we're at, where the business is at, what we're going through, how we're waiting for this to come through or that's fallen through so that that communication, media companies are famously shocking at communication. I've worked for places where I would find out what's happening in the business through media releases that have gone out everywhere else. And obviously management want to keep things secret and journos have a habit of leaking and I understand that. But um, at the same time, it, it can create a culture of us versus them, of seniority versus slave and I don't necessarily think that that works. And I think that right now, starting a business as we are, it's great to set off the foundations as a communication business. And when you have a bad day or someone stuffs up, it usually is great. When you go to tell them, hey, there was a problem there, they respect it more because it's not the first time they hear from you. Um, it's not like the, the relationship is you never hear from your manager unless there's a problem. Yeah. That doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work with the younger generation. And I think that any idea that it's just millennials, well, I just think it was the wrong approach in the first place, to be honest. 
And what about the early listeners and, and, and audience that you've had? What, what's, what are the most common um, pieces of feedback or advice they're sharing upwards to you guys? Well, the first thing was how do we watch Ticker, right? So people would see things on their, um, on their LinkedIn that would come up of other people who'd appear on it who they knew. Uh, there was our Twitter, et cetera. And it's very, very, very hard to start a brand. For example, Disney has moved into Disney Plus streaming and they've got like 100 trillion people who have paid for their service. Why? Well, because they're Disney, they're already known. But if a little Australian production company decided to start a streaming service, how on earth would anyone find out? And so when we first started Ticker, I had a business partner who had just returned from the US, loved the US, loved Silicon Valley, was obsessed with Silicon Valley, and was hoping that Ticker could be something similar to a business called Cheddar. Now, I was aware of Cheddar and they're kind of this young, hip, as I mentioned, market-driven, um, telling young people what's happening in the cannabis sectors and Bitcoin. Well, Bitcoin isn't really huge in Australia. And also this idea of build it and they will come in terms of charge for subscription ain't going to work. And I really didn't listen to my gut instinct and wanted to believe that it was the case and went along down that path. But the second we launched a paid service, it was very clear from the early numbers and just that sense that who's going to pay for something they don't know. Sure. And the basic business of um, you would spend more on marketing and billboards and social media advertising to get people to come and have a look before they would even pay uh, than you could ever make from your $55 a year subscription. So there was a lot of kind of wasted energy there. But the number one lesson that we learned was being agile and understanding that if it doesn't work, fix it right away at any cost because otherwise it will sink the business. And so straight away we put, we, we got rid of the first app. We went to another company that could do four apps, Android and Apple on both iPhone and also on TV. Mm -hmm. And that ability to quickly transfer and to change and to know that we're stuffed unless we do this. Um, I think that driving ambition of, whatever it takes and that's what you need to have. Now, that's great, mate. And I think that's, you know, I'd love you to build on that a little bit more because, um, you know, you hear businesses talk about the necessity to be agile. I don't know if a lot of them know the definition still yet, but they talk about it. A lot do. And it sounds like, you know, you, you, made, you had to make some quick and hard, fast uh, decisions um, early to, to switch that up. Have you had any experience with, you know, ha having to, as a personal um, endeavour, be quick or be, be, be able to move in your career or, or, your, or your job direction? Oh, so, so many times. Like it, it comes back to sport, doesn't it? I go running and I go bike riding and you've got that horrible hill. And I find that if you look at the top of the hill from the bottom of the hill, it just makes it a hundred times worse. Whereas if you keep your eyes down on the ground directly in front of your feet and you're only looking where you are right now and dealing with what's in front of you, not what could be around the corner, it actually helps so much. Um, I look back to a period of my life where I was really unhappy and that was when to be honest, I was shifted across to um, Sky News Business from Sky News and I didn't know much about business news and I loved news. And these days I love both because being a business journal taught me so much about politics and news and how the whole world works. So when I went back, I had a greater understanding of why don't we have enough money to pay everybody? Oh, that's why. That's, you know, that kind of link between the two. Um, but I remember just having the frustration all the time and talking to my manager all the time and going, I want to go back to news and him going, Aaron, I have so many people who are doing the same thing right now. I don't have time nor any interest. And that 
is a really good sign of never hassle your boss if you're unhappy. Come up with a way to fix your problem yourself. So we were at Channel 9 at the time. Sky News was based at Channel 9, right next to the studio where a current affair was broadcast. And they were moving down to a different studio. And the audio director said to me, would you like these four microphones? And I put them in my backpack riding home. And I'm thinking, because we didn't have much equipment. And I'm thinking, what could I use four microphones for? And it was 2009, ahead of the 2010 state election. And I thought, well, imagine if I did this show each week of the four weeks of an election campaign on the banks of the Yarra with me and three guests using those four mics and talking about where we're at and what's coming up and it could be education, whatever. So as I rode home along the Yarra, I went past the Melbourne Convention Centre and thought, I'll do the show there. So I get home, call them, they say yes. I pitch the show to Sydney and, and they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll definitely do it. Sounds great. What a great idea. And then the day that we're about to do it, the convention center calls me and says, we can't do this every week. So I call Eureka Tower and say, can we do it there? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. And so I started doing this show about news and politics on my own. So after my day at work at 2 p.m., we go across to Eureka Tower, build the set every single Thursday, everything that comes with that, organize all the guests. We were getting the Lord Mayor, the Premier, the PM at one stage. Just it became this little Melbourne show that I was just doing in my spare time. That then taught management that A, I could change, make a show, get a show happening. I put it all on my credit card. One of the auto cues here is an auto cue that takes back 10 years ago from when I decided to start that show because I knew that the only way to get yourself out of a problem is to blast yourself out. It's not to complain yourself out. So that kind of, and, and you never know where that takes you. And knowing that I could start that business and well, essentially it was like a business, meant that starting Ticker was the same, just a couple more studios. Mate, that's a great insight. And that's you know, very inventive and, and creative uh, you know, on your front to, to have a crack at that. And I think I would say it regardless of whether that had worked or not, and I'm glad it was successful, I would say even if that didn't work, that would have given you some great learnings and, and um, you know, taught you a, a bunch of great stuff That's along the way. That's what I thought right? when I started Ticker. Like, it was July last year and I was like, okay, what am I going to do? And um, I knew that time had been coming for a little while and time was up and it was time to start something new. And I didn't want to go to the ABC or Channel 7 or Channel 9. I had no interest and I didn't really want to go overseas either. While I've been talking and having a chat and things, my heart just wasn't in it. And so when I decided one Friday night, I'm sitting on eBay with two bottles of wine in the middle of winter at home. It's about 11 o'clock. And I created a, basically a cart of everything that I needed to buy to start a television station from the equipment that I didn't already own. And I was just like, do I do this? Because if I do this and it fails, how embarrassing. But then I thought if I do this and it fails, imagine... A, how it looks on my CV that I tried. B, I know that I can do the technical and the only reason it would fail is because of the business side. And who knows? Who knows who I'll attract? Who knows who will be attracted to me because I gave it a go? And I just hit buy and then off it went. And that was the feeling that was going through my head. This wasn't a strategy. This wasn't a well-planned execution. This was just a get the stuff and then make a business plan. And if I look back at that business plan, we're all told to have a business plan and I had to have one, but it's nothing like what, what Ticker is now. It was, Ticker was originally going to be a channel about aviation because that was my passion. I loved uh, aviation news and stories about 
but I'd be stuffed now because there's no planes flying. So that gives you an idea of just extending it and knowing that don't make yourself too niche, but certainly be niche, but go for the biggest niches. Don't go for too small a niche. Well, that's awesome, mate. I love that. Um, and you, you must, you know, you, you talked about aviation news being one of your passions. Just news in general must be a passion of yours, right? Like, um, let, let's talk about how you jumped into your career in journalism because, you know, when I looked at your, your LinkedIn, um, you know, the first role you took was a cadet journalism role. Uh, can you talk to us about, you know, th- throw us back in time a little bit. Um, how, how did you get started in the world of media? It started at a really, really young age, actually. And it was always, when I look back, um, linked to being an entrepreneur. So I think it was grade four when McDonald's moved into Rosebud. And that was a big deal. The Peninsula had kind of nothing big like that at all. And the local council put all these restrictions on McDonald's. They couldn't have a sign. There were just so many things that they were told they're not allowed to do. And so I remember they gave us all kids these little McDonald's visors and I took it to school and decided in my lunch break that I would set up an entire town. So I had a McDonald's, um, had a, uh, a TV station that happened to be Channel 7 because my mum used to watch uh, a country practice. And um, I became really fascinated with television and the local mayor became any girl that I fancied back in the day. Um, so that's how it kind of worked. And that really taught me how TV would operate. And I just started becoming quite obsessive with television where I would build studios at home out of crepe paper and cardboard in my bedroom that was the Channel 7 newsroom and on and on it would go. And I would just keep making it better and learn that there was just something about TV that I thought was, was so great. So by the time I got to secondary college, it's one thing to like TV it's another to work in it. Someone said, well, you better work on your English skills. So I really focused a lot on media and English and history. I was quite fascinated by them anyway, and then went into work experience. So um, went to the local newspaper. Would you believe I was incredibly shy back in those days? If someone asked me and said, Aaron, how are you doing in the schoolyard? I couldn't find it within myself to say, good, how are you? I just was so shy. And that does, is, was always a really early battle against that. I mean, what kind of journalist can be shy? It's your job to knock on doors and to knock down doors. Um, and then in broadcast, it's to talk. But I was really, really shy. I just didn't know what to say or why anyone would listen to me. Um, and then went to a, uh, the Melbourne show. My girlfriend at the time, her grandparents, pushed me into the Magic 693 caravan to meet this guy, Dennis Walter, uh, who was the local news anchor on win TV and even though I was too young to do work experience I think I was about 14 he took me in and next thing I'm in Ballarat for the week doing work experience meeting all these great people and seeing how TV works in a rural little version of a channel 9 um, and that was also a great formulating experience for what I would later do here after high school never really cared too much about high school but did the school magazine on my own the whole magazine in year 11 or 12 um, which was a far better experience than anything I was going to be taught uh, for what I wanted to do. And uh, sent out 365 letters and did demo tapes and everything to every TV, radio station, newspaper I could find in the yellow pages. And they all came back with a no, except for the winning post, which was a horse racing newspaper. And I had no idea about horse racing. So uh, then in September 2000, just as the Olympics were about to happen, I got a call from the editor of that local paper I had done the work experience with, 
who said, we got a job. You don't have to do everything, but we got a job for you. So I started there and then they sold to a guy and he basically ran the business into the ground. So after all of that excitement, after all of that energy, I end up back at Woolies packing shelves. And it was so humbling that you can go from your dream job and thinking you're on the way up to crashing again. And I was thinking this morning as I was getting ready for ticker, if everything suddenly went backwards, I wouldn't give up. I'd just kind of think of what can I do in the meantime to get through getting to your earlier point. Um, so after that, I started working in local radio, community radio in Melbourne um, as a breakfast newsreader. I was 19 with braces, so you can imagine how I sounded. After three months of, um, of doing that, I thought, well, I probably could make money out of this if I did it myself. So I started up in my apartment in South Yarra this radio news business called Como Network News because I lived opposite the Como building and uh, where Channel 10 was. And um, I sold it to radio stations around Victoria. So I had five or six stations and I was doing breakfast news, afternoon news. And in, during the day, it was um, 2GB's Melbourne unpaid correspondent. That got me to rub shoulders with other journos at press conferences and to get audio that I was secretly using for my own bulletins later on in the day. Um, and uh, that got the attention of 3AW. So um, I started getting calls from all these people who were furious that I was undercutting 3AW's prices. I found out from one radio station what AW was charging for their news service and I charged half because I didn't need much money. <laughs> so it was fine. Um, and I, my reporters were just mates who worked in office jobs and I would email them a script, get them to phone me up and I'd record their voice reports. Our state political reporter was just Dan who worked for KPMG. <laughs> that was kind of how it was. You just do what you can. And I realised that so much journalism is just people talking and having personality. So um, I accidentally got a job at 3AW, uh, which I won't go into, but accidentally got a job and uh, started there and then... I was covering the gangland wars, um, chased Carl Williams at one stage into a toilet block and he ran me over. Uh, it was a pretty crazy job, but a wonderfully entrepreneurial job. Um, got bashed by the police light on air at a student protest once, just all, all over the place. But also, I learned that Melbourne media is very much a club and I didn't want to be in that club and I didn't really fit into that club. And being an outsider who didn't grow up in the city, I never really felt like I was part of it. Um, which again helps me with ticker. So uh, all of those experiences, I got, I went overseas, covered the tsunami in Thailand, just as it happened, uh, the Asian tsunami, and then moved to London and uh, was there when the Pope died in Rome. And so I went to Rome. It was really one of my first overseas trips. And I'm in Rome with four or five million Catholics and uh, making sense of all that and the election of the new Pope. Then the London bombings happened and I was the first Aussie journo Covering that on location, and I was up for about four nights without any sleep, just doing live crosses back to Australia, to Sky, to all of the 3AW, 2UEs, all those stations back in the day. And um, then went for an interview in London for this news channel that I had no idea anything about. I was 23, just turning 23. And at the end of this audition at APTN headquarters, this woman sits down, very, very mysterious looking woman with a thick Russian accent and she says, how would you feel about moving to Moscow? And I was like, I've always wanted to live in Russia and I'm kind of thinking anything I can about Russia. And I'm thinking, well, I love vodka and I love James Bond and he's always against the Russians, but at least that gives me something. And 
a week later, I'm moving to Russia with 80 other British and American journos and off I go in Moscow. So I was there for 10 freezing months. I had minus 37 for three months of the year. And uh, then my mum had a baby when I was 24 and I came back, was flying through Sydney and Sky offered me a job again, just by chance. And I was there for 13 years. Wow. I don't know where to start on there. That, <laughs> yeah. that, is, that is an amazing journey. That is, that's got a bit of everything, that's right? That's very much the version of oh, how it happened. 100%, the, mate. But that's... The extraordinary experiences that I'm kind of casting over. Like I go to these parties, mate, in Moscow. I very quickly got invited as a 23-year-old to all these different incredible parties in with the expat who work for embassies. So they're Canadian, American, British, New Zealand, Australian, and they all hang out with each other. And they all get these fabulous apartments in these beautiful Russian buildings. And every weekend, someone would have a party. And you'd have um, Russian ministers, spies, CNN anchors. It was incredible what you would see, the conversations you would have. And so when I came back to Melbourne, I was so flat. I was For like, sure. what am I doing back here? Like, there is a whole world going on out there. And yet here, if it's not footy, we don't want to know about it. And it was really, really, really challenging when I came back to Melbourne. Oh, no doubt, mate. And, and yeah, that, 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 that journey, and I know that's just a, a snapshot. Um, I'd love to hear about every party, every uh, lesson, every up and down you had. But um, yeah, there's a lot about every No, I won't. I won't. <laughs> there's a lot in there, that, mate. That, you know, you're obviously very opportunistic. You know, I guess the good thing about news and the good thing about you know, wanting to be a journalist is that there's always something to cover, something to talk about, a story to tell, etc. Sometimes they're massive uh, you know, world headline news and other times you know, you've got to find the story and, and, you know, and, and be creative to find that. I think what happens, if I can just jump in there, is yep. that we have a mistake in humanity of always trying to find comfort. And to find comfort means that you try to resist change when it happens or you're surprised by it. And over all of those years of covering stories, of going to bed and not knowing where I'm going to be the next day, like I've literally woken up in Melbourne, gone to work and then gone to sleep in Paris. Like, and you didn't know that was going to happen. You just get a call saying you're off in an hour, you're on a plane. And that means that I suppose it breaks you down. Nothing ever feels familiar. And you realise that when something like COVID-19 happens, you just see it as a cycle. It becomes another kind of way of dealing with things. And yeah, it has long lasting effects, don't get me wrong, but you also realize that everything is an opportunity. And if you can learn from it, stay relevant, and I hate to use the word agile, but just what you did yesterday should not be what you do today. And it's the same as your exercise regime, right? You don't wanna just go for a 5K run for the rest of your life. You want to break it up a bit because you never know when your body's going to tell you you can't. And if you're so used to something, it'll be so much more of a shock when you can no longer do that thing. So I think our whole society is being shocked into trying new things. Um, yeah. And that is really, really great to be a great time to start a business. Yeah, with the benefit of hindsight, would that, would that be the advice or the... Um you know, the learnings that you'd give your younger self if you went back to, you know, those late teens, early 20s or, or advice you'd give someone now that's just starting to get into, you know, journalism and content creation? Would that be, would that be the advice you'd share is, you know, don't worry about tomorrow, there's always something going to happen? My advice would also be don't look for a full-time job. I know that sounds right. the opposite of what we've all been told. But I think that our reliance on a full-time job actually holds us back. And I had people saying this to me when I was at Sky. 
why are you still there? You're so loyal all the time. Why are you so loyal to these companies? And I was like, well, because they'll be loyal back. And the reality is no company is loyal anymore. No one is loyal to anyone anymore. It's just how it is. There are so many other things that are completely out of our own or their own um, doing that these days companies are looking after the future of their companies. That's how it works, not necessarily the loyalty of their staff. So I think that um, number one, I would tell myself, stop panicking, everything will be okay. It's so easy to become anxious when you're outside of it and you think that it's always gonna be like this. Um, where I was last year, looking at starting a business and thinking, oh my God, I don't know about so many things. It was so overwhelming. Imagine you've got the business side and then you've got the graphic side, the content side, the staffing side, the where are you gonna do your office location side. There are so many things, but again, that view of you get through it, you just do one thing at a time. I think that is the advice that I would love to have given myself. I grew up on the Mornington Peninsula. As much as I love the beach, I was always frustrated by the isolation of growing up down there. And I would imagine just standing on a rock, you know, looking up in the sky, thinking one day there'll be studio lights, but I'll never get there. Well, I wish I could go back to that 14-year-old and say, enjoy the bloody beach, you idiot. Like, you're not going to get to the beach as often as you get older. You're there. You've got this amazing experience. Right now, I can't drive to that beach. Like, you just never know what's going to be around the corner. Um, you might end up in a wheelchair. You might end up in some. So just enjoy where you're at. Enjoy what you've got because, and make the best use of it because if you're always wanting to be somewhere else, you'll never get there. You'll never be happy. Um, my greatest test for how happy I am is, am I drinking too much? Then I'm probably not too happy. Or if I go on a holiday, and while I'm on the holiday, I'm still bored and I'm saying to myself, I need to go on a holiday and I'm on the holiday, there must be something going on that you've got to deal with. And that's why we started the show, 30 Life Crisis, for people who are doing something in the anxiety and the Sunday night, they're sitting at home thinking, I hate the idea of waking up tomorrow. Or they're going to bed at 1 a.m because they don't want to go to bed at 10 because they don't want to wake up in the morning. They want to try and enjoy their free time as much as they can. Do we want to live like that? I mean, is that, I don't know. I know that people in the past have gone through world wars and we're pretty lucky to have a job, right? But I just think that your own personal happiness and getting rid of that anxiety and making sure that you are kind of having a goal, but not necessarily sticking to it perfectly, um, that surely is a bit better. That's my view. You know, I'm with you, mate. And, and you know, one of, the reasons I was, one of the reasons I started this podcast was, you know, I really don't think there's that one job that everyone should have to attain to only. Uh, I think life is full of dream jobs. You know, I, like you, I've had, um, I've had multiple roles where some were long tenures uh, and others were short. Um, and I, I love them equally for, for different reasons. Um, and I, and yeah. I, 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 I you know, I believe that even through those different roles, the necessities that I was going through changed and, and altered and switched um, each time as well to, that helped me drive whether that was a dream job for me at that particular time um, and whether it wasn't tomorrow, et cetera. Well, so, circumstances change, right? So at one stage, in my 20s, it was so much fun to be here, there and everywhere. Yeah. But then I remember looking back at the start of last year and I'm still living in a one-bedroom apartment and the number one thing I'm proud of is the size of my television and how good my suitcase is because I need it to have a mobile phone charger in it so that I'm never without mobile phone as I'm flying around the world. But the things that I also love, like having a dog, having a stable relationship, I didn't have. Yeah. And 
as you move through your life, things change. That excitement of seeing the world gets replaced with, well, I love the Labrador now. I'd love to have that sense of loyalty and friendship. And, and to be able to change your job, because quite often it's your job that prevents you from having a job, oh, or it's your job that means you need to live in a certain place. So as you start to look around and say, gosh, it'd be nice to not live in a one-bedroom apartment anymore, um, you realize it, well, I live right next to the city. I can only afford a one-bedroom apartment. So if you want to change your life, sometimes you have to change your job. Oh, 100%. And you've got to be ready for that next opportunity, uh, which is the goal thing. And yeah, one, of the, one of the key reasons I wanted to speak with you, because I, I really love um, you know, some of the... Um, sort of the initiatives that, that you list out for Ticker. And, and you know, I, I loved a couple of the quotes you use across the website and a few of your socials. Um, and if you're the creative guy, they probably come from you. The first quote that I really liked was, uh, or is, uh, Ticker isn't for the CEO, it's for the people who work for the CEO and one day want to be a CEO. What's behind that? Well, again, it's the us and them mentality. It's that kind of view that a, an organization, and the Japanese are actually the worst at this, would you believe, in that they have this real sense of um, you are up here and you are down here. And I think that as much as I admire capitalism, um, capitalism tries to stop capitalism from happening, which is the whole thing is about change and the whole thing is about being able to rise up and to be able to say, I'm not happy with these circumstances. Things need to change right through history. That's what has happened. Um, the work boot has always, in the end, beaten the UG boot. And to make sure that the workers um, in an organisation are being allowed to, to feel like what they are saying is important to me is really important. Now, all companies need leaderships, but to think that only leaders know what's truly best for a company, I haven't seen that in my journey. I haven't seen that. I, I've always felt like there's another alternative or there's another way. And if the companies listened a little bit more to what the people on the ground are experiencing rather than a top-down approach, I think that companies would do a lot better. Well, what I loved about Skype was so entrepreneurial and our CEO, Angela, would always say, we're a little bit like the mosquito that just is constantly on the ABC. And I love that, like that buyer, that view of, as much as I respect the ABC, they're like the Titanic. They can't move quickly when something's there because there's just too many parts to move. But if your organisation is agile, if you make your staff feel like their viewpoint on the organisation is as important as the CEO's, then I think that the CEO, A, becomes a better person. The CEO is more agile, is more in tune with people. And I just also think that... Um, we want people to feel like they're able to shift and to be able to change as well as much as they can. Yeah, that's great, man. And the best CEOs I've seen are ones that um, you know foster that kind of culture with with their staff uh, from top to bottom, not even just from their leadership team, but you know top to bottom. And then also, but I think it's the same when businesses grow, they start to lose that. Like there's this view from a CEO that I'm too busy to know what's happening on the ground now. I'm too busy. I'm flying here. I'm flying there. Um, I don't know what's going on. You start to rely on these people who come up with the dreadful title of middle management. Um, and middle management, I always refer to as Janet. And Janet's always someone who's come up and doesn't quite want to be in that role and loses the respect of the people that she used to work with and will never have the respect of the people above her, even though she desperately wants to be one of them. I have seen that with my own eyes. Yep. And that kind of organisation, I think at a time like what we are going through right now, it just doesn't work. 
Oh, exactly right. And, and you know, your audience, um, you know, will likely skew a bit younger uh, because of statements like that. You know, I saw another quote that I loved, um, you know, the, the Netflix of news. Uh, and I know that you're going for sort of that under 50 kind of age group, right? And I don't know whether you've zeroed in even tighter on, than that on a certain age group target, have you? How funny you say that. So let's say, so let's, I'll, I'll give you a bit of insight here. Yeah. It was going to be under 40s network. And then I realized I'm 37 and this might take a bit longer than three years to get right. So it became under 45s. Sure as I hit 44, it'll be an under 50s network. But have you ever met someone over 45 who hasn't felt under 45? Because I never have. They may look in the mirror and see someone that they don't necessarily recognize anymore, but they still feel young. They still feel full of energy. And to be able to, uh, we have a show hosted, we have a lot of shows hosted by people who are well over 45, yep. but they talk to others who are over 45 in the same way that they have that energy, that youth, and it's about changing the mentality. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about under 45s, we only say that because in many ways under 45s haven't set themselves in for the rest of their lives, are willing to change, are willing to take risk. And what I love about Ticker is we have hosts who talk to people who are over 45 about how they took risk. The average age of an entrepreneur in this country isn't 18 or 20 like you might think it is. It's 52. Yeah. It's people who have gone through business, been turfed out the other side through redundancies or just they're not needed anymore. And that's when they recreate their entire lives. So that's the person we talk to. That's the person we want to help. That's the person that we all will one day become because we have an aging population, we have a service culture now as opposed to a manufacturing society and economy, and we have a lot of people who, um, a lot of businesses who are moving to a casual workforce instead of a full-time workforce because they don't know what's around the corner. So you've got to be able to start your own business. That's great, mate. And, and I know that you, know, you you definitely, in the original state, I read that you wanted to really, um, I guess, consider and, and um, you know, present tech and digital uh, at the forefront of what you do, which is obviously important because you're, you're an online platform and you've made moves, obviously, getting onto Apple TV and, and the Google network, etc. Um, you know, my audience, um, you know, as I build it, will be that kind of, uh, you know, career mover, career changer, in, in, in many instances, a graduate or, or student. Um, I want them to be learning. Like that's the biggest advice I want to pass on is that there's always a learning opportunity, no matter what day it is, no matter oh, what, yeah. what year you are in your career. Like what key things do you want your audience to learn from Ticker as you build the business? Well, I'll go back a little bit. When the NBM was first announced, remember how dreadful the internet was? I've always been an early adopter of technology. Before Apple TV, I used to have a Sony PlayStation where you could download videos or movies from the Sony PlayStation store. And I, on a Friday night, I'd be so proud of this. I'd have my 3G wireless router going and I'd have my mates come over. But annoyingly, I lived next to the MCG and it would take about 13 hours to download the first five minutes of the movie. And so I realized that when the NBN came through, what was going to happen, and I could literally see this, was the democratization of the entire media industry. So what, why would you bother having a tower on Mount Dandenong or in Willoughby in Sydney broadcasting this old-fashioned 1920s technology signal where now everyone can upload and download five HD signals at once using the MBN. Whether the MBN turned out to be that good, who knows? Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, regardless of that, 
if you have a look back at the last couple of years, the TV networks have been doing massive write downs of the value of their broadcasting license. And that just sums up what I think. Pretty soon, well, in Germany right now, they've begun trials of broadcasting their TV networks only on 5G. So shutting down the traditional towers. So therefore, the one thing that they always had over us going out the window, then you have a look at your own personal behavior. My TV is only ever on HDMI 1. I don't even know where the remote is to be able to go back to channel 7 or 9. If I want to watch 7 or 9, I need to watch 7 plus or 9 now and go through that horrible activation thing that they have. But you do it if you really want to watch it. So that means that the ticker app on my Apple TV sits next to the channel 9 app on my Apple TV and it doesn't change. And that's where we're going. That's what's going to happen. So therefore it becomes about your brand and obviously Channel 9's brand has been around forever. But I really watch, and I hate to be critical, but I think we watch these massive media mergers of say, Nine buying Fairfax so they get access to The Age and the City Morning Herald. Well, that's great while they're printing newspapers, but what happens in a couple of years time, or even now, yeah, now. Uh, where they go, we can't do this anymore. There's been talk for ages of The Age and the SMH would go to like a Monday hard copy paper and a Sunday hard copy paper because they lose money every other day of the week. So when that happens, the age just becomes a brand on the internet and the SMH just becomes a brand on the internet. We know these brands because we grew up with them, but the next generation, what's it going to mean to them? It's yeah. just another internet source of news. And then Nine ends up owning both of those brands as well as having the Channel 9 News brand online that they're pumping out. You see on their microphones, they've got the 9news.com.au. It's in the bottom of the corner. So they're actually now competing against their own online entity. My fear is over time, these brands will also disappear. They just won't matter to people anymore. So instead of buying a company for $2 billion, so just so you can get access to a brand that... I think in a couple of years will be 20 people in an office in Sydney, 20 people in an office in Melbourne, no back end. Um, that's what we're all moving towards. Yep. Well, I want to start a business that's where they're going. Yeah. And that's how I look at it. So low overheads, what you see is what there is. Ticker is a Hollywood set. All you see is all there is. Yeah. That's how business has to be. Why would you have 100 people behind the scenes? when you can't, when, when people are choosing your channel for your content. Yeah. So it's not that I want anyone to lose their jobs. I'm just trying to reflect in my business what my own human nature is and what I'm seeing. That's awesome, mate. And um, look, for a journalist student out there right now listening to this or, or, or anyone in, um, you know, in media, maybe sick of their current role, as Ticker grows, um, you know, and as, as the platform, which is exciting, it's an exciting business model and, and I wish you nothing but luck with it, but as it grows and, and builds and I guess you take on more opportunity and more staff and, and, and more people being able to, to work with you, what should someone do? How does someone, how does someone reach out to you guys? How does someone show their interest to work with you in the future? Yeah, well, it's a very good question. We just went through a process where um, I realised we needed a social media person to, to be dedicated to going through all of our so many shows, cutting up the best bits, putting them out on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and YouTube and all of the different deals because every show has a different deal that we've negotiated and that's the person that needs to do it and we're just kind of getting a little bit beyond us. I'm looking at the other side of this computer at a wall that now has seven hours of content five days a week 
and every show is different and every show has its own personality and its own opener. If I had stuck to, and this was a funny thing, at Sky I had been doing everything. So Reporter even built the sets at one stage in Melbourne and Sydney and, and uh, Perth was managing staff. I was in Afghanistan reporting with the Australian Army as an embed getting calls from the accounts department saying, why haven't you done this week's rosters? <laughs> and so the thing is, is, was being an all-rounder was so important. And the reason I'm going and telling you this is because when we went through this process of hiring a social media person, all I was getting was emails from people who can do social media. And the problem with that is that no small business these days can survive with one person who can do one thing. The person we ended up choosing is actually someone we already knew. We knew her work ethic. We knew that she was a great person. We knew that she was never going to be a problem on the team. We knew that she fit in with us. We fit in with her. We'd have to adjust our behavior because we're three guys and we're about to bring a, a girl into the team. And I wanted that. I wanted to make sure that this was a team that um, wasn't just three blokes sitting around having a yak, that it was actually much, much more than that and that we could be open to anyone um, joining the team. And I think a lot of startups make that mistake where they become too male-centric and they don't move away from that. So I wanted us as quickly as we could to get away from that. And Alana was, became the right person. She was a host and she had been working on this show called The Big Day about weddings. And we had a business model for that show that did not work. And after a week, she came back and said, hey, this just ain't going to work. So we quickly came up with a new one. She went out, sold that, had four shows in the can. And then coronavirus hits. And how can you do a show about weddings? <laughs> so uh, we parked that and she emailed me and said, look, I've just lost my other job. I don't know what to do. And just as I was about to go through my, I think we've got about 600 resumes from my one call out on LinkedIn. And what do 600 resumes mean to me? How do I do anyone justice? How is anyone better than anyone else? So I went with the devil I knew. I went with the person who I had the relationship with. I went for the person who showed me that they were willing to change in a crisis or when things didn't work well. When Jen and I were building the studio, the other studio was still going in our old premises and we were at Bunnings and this notification comes through on my Instagram and it's this shoot happening at this premises and it's a wedding premises. And I'm like, did you know that there was a film shoot happening today on location? He's like, it must be the wedding show. And Alana had just taken the nouse to go out and shoot the show herself because the studio was busy at the time. I can't describe a better resume than that. Yeah, gotcha. It's not just what I've done in the past, but how will I deal with your business right yeah. now? So don't come to me via email. Come to me as a person. Build up a rapport. Show me that you're someone who's human and show me that you're keen and that you're a great person. Don't tell me it, show it. That's great, mate. That's great advice. Um, that's a really good insight. So uh, lesson learned. And, and I'm going to wrap this up, mate. I really appreciate your time. I'm going to finish with, uh, we do a listener question of the week. Uh, and this, this is probably from a media student. This is a guy named Troy. Uh, so Troy has asked, what is the biggest achievement or mistake you made in your early career uh, that you learned the most from? And you've had a diverse career. I'll give you a second to think about it. You've had Plenty of different jobs. You've had some amazing opportunities, obviously. Um, so, yeah, biggest career achievement, early career achievement, or biggest mistake that you uh, learned something from? That is such a great question. And there is like 20 trillion things running through my head right now of, of great disasters and great uh, <laughs> moments where things have worked out. Um, 
And it's very hard to choose one specific. I think of the time where I've made, I've made terrible mistakes in reporting that were never deliberate but because I didn't know the rules. Um, for example, reporting that someone had died before the family member had been told. I didn't know that that was the case. And I still think about it to this day. Like you as a journalist have nightmares about the times that it goes wrong. Yeah. But so long as you're having the nightmares, I think that's what's so important. So long as you're still being taken back to the lesson that you learn. And that is the greatest achievement is to learn from a shocking time that is emotionally impacting and to make sure that it never happens again, that you become stronger and better for it. And also that you talk to people about it when they're about to go through the same thing. In our office, I've got a lot of young people who I work with and you assume knowledge, you assume that they know what you know. And I quite often have to go, you know, it becomes Aaron's story time. And when I say, look, this happened, this exact situation happened and I went down the exact path we're about to go down and this is what I learned out of it. So um, it's funny, the number one thing that comes to mind that was a disaster was when um, this tsunami happened and I could just sense that this was going to be a big Australian story. The ABC had someone over in Thailand, in Tong Beach, where, as we know, a lot of Australians go holidaying in Tong, um, and we had no one. And I went to my news director and said, we need to do this. And he was on holiday. It was that time when everyone was on holiday. But the station manager or the program director didn't want me to go, didn't want anyone to go, didn't want to spend any money. That's what it came down to. So eventually the news director won out. I had to go speak to the program director and I have never been spoken to the way that he spoke to me. He called me every name under the sun because his authority had been challenged. So then I'm going to the, uh, I went and got my shots and I go to the airport and I'm on this nine hour Thai Airways flight I've never felt more anxious. Like, I just thought, if this doesn't, it was my first overseas trip ever. I'd never even been on a holiday. And I'm going to a disaster zone, being basically told, if this doesn't work, you're finished. Your entire career is finished. And I worked 23 hours a day for four days, right? Just kept filing reports. Was so, was working off that sense of, I'm screwed if this doesn't work. So I wasn't looking after myself at all. And at one stage, I fell asleep and turn my mobile off and the hotel phone rings and it's that program director saying, you're not there to sleep, you're there to work, get back. So I got back and I got to the, uh, I got to the, um, the end of it after two weeks, came home and he sent a fax from his office, which is just over there to the newsroom saying, Aaron, well done. Now, you could say that that was a huge disaster. We, you know, it was not a great time to go through, but what a great lesson about how your managers don't actually know better than you a lot of the time and you have to stick with your gut sometimes and really push because it's the right thing we won awards for that we we became well respected for that i became respected for that and the network won awards for sending people over there and they ended up sending other journalists to arche and the other hotspots. your managers don't always know better than you they don't always have the answers and that to me is from a very young age was a real moment for me of, that I've carried through for the rest of my career. And now that I'm in a management role, I feel the same. There'll be a little Aaron who'll come along one day and teach me something I don't know and I need to be prepared for it.
That's awesome, Aaron. And maybe that little Aaron's Troy. So I wish Troy the best with his studies. You might see him behind the uh, on the ticker screens in, in, in no time at all. Hey, mate, I've really enjoyed this chat. Um, thank you so much for coming on Dream Job Ready. Um, I wish you nothing but success with ticker. I'll be uh, continuing to watch, mate. There's plenty to talk about for you guys right now. And uh, yeah, thanks again for joining me. Yeah, and congrats to you and your new family as well. I know that's an amazing um, skill. I hope that I'm now in a position where I can now run a business and have a family which feels like the first time I've been able to say that my whole life. So change your job and sometimes you can change your life. No, it's great to be busy. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.